Yes, yes, yes. In this episode of Mont Icons, we speak to Ilias Ronenfeld of cult Danish punk band Ice Age. Ilias, welcome to Mont. Uh, tell us a bit about what's going on in Copenhagen right now. Well, not a whole lot is going on in Copenhagen right now. I, I, I mean, the, the the British strain is slowly making its rounds through the country. Everything is closed besides supermarkets and churches for some reason. And um, it's been very cold and it's been very dark. It's getting progressively colder while getting progressively brighter as well. So um, after just having been through what was the, um, the coldest December month since 1959, I believe, the, the turn of the year has actually uh, provided us with a bit more daylight now, which is very welcomed. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit like there's um, a blanket over daily life and um, everything is sort of restrained. Can you talk a little bit about the poetry that you've been working on for the last few months? Well, um, around February 2019, uh, a friend gave me a nice big notebook and I started to go to this public library um, that has a a really old reading hall. um, And I would go there for a minimum of 45 minutes a day and start writing about whatever. And that was just something I kept going through the days and, 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 and a new thing that I, I sort of strive to keep a discipline about. And around March last year when COVID kicked in, I stopped this process because lockdown was affecting my writing in a way that I didn't want to... Um, I didn't want to go necessarily because, you know, it started to become this lockdown writing and I wanted to be, I didn't want to be the person to, to be doing like a sort of a lockdown diary. Uh, I could sense that becoming very pathetic really quick. And so in, instead of, of continuing my writing, I, I started editing that stuff. And um, yeah, it, it's become what I've, I think is like a, a book uh, that's, that's based on just completely free writing uh, that I've, I've done. Uh, throughout my days of, of that period of roughly a year and, and it's been fine-tuned into something that might be something but yeah it's I don't know what else to say. When did you start writing? Um, have you always been writing? Um, have you always played in bands uh, or, or did writing kind of come first to you? No writing came as a, as a necessity through doing bands because I, I ended up as a, a lead singer in a band and and when you're a bit into that process you find that that lyrics are a necessity and some somebody's got to write them so um it started out as a as a, a task and became something throughout the years that i found out that you could sort of dive into and explore and 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 take a liking to but i've always kept notes and, and notebooks which also serve as like a large piece of, of source material when i actually have to gather um things into and, and write it into lyric form uh, I, I was actually going through I, I had a friend over for dinner earlier tonight she asked if i had any old pictures of myself and i don't really keep childhood pictures and that kind of stuff around but i remembered an old notebook from when i was about 14 years old uh, i had a rediscovery tonight of, of what a messed up kid i was so it was like a, a, a long chronicle of um, of collage and drawings and little writings and, and, and stuff and pictures of Tupac and, and Biggie Smalls uh, quotes and a reworking of the Futurist Manifesto into uh, like this thing where that that nature were supposed to take over and like a, an, another plan for an art movement. Because I was obsessed with, and it was a lot of newspaper cut-ups, uh, cut-offs uh, of murder and and local crime, and I was quite obsessed with crime and violence because I think that that to me the the underground scene was stale to me, and I, I didn't know where to take it. Because, but violence seemed like a like a necessity in a dead culture. So I had I found out, and I completely forgotten about this, but I found like this whole 
sketched out idea sheet for an art movement where meaningless crime would be the art. And when the art would find its way into the, when the crime would find its way into the newspaper, uh, that would be the art being framed. And uh, <laughs> and when it was taken to police, that would be the, the gallery. And it would just like, like the ideas would just like, you know, like um, somehow like finding a, a dead cow carcass and placing it in a, in a traffic light and then have this symbol uh, placed upon, uh, above it. And then through these meaningless crimes, the, the symbol would like these, these meaningless things would be gathered up by police and newspapers. and eventually they would see a link between them, but it was meaningless. Um, and, and, and then eventually you would, you would, you would, you would kind of start this whole investigation and that would be like the gallery and, and the output of the art itself. So, so like, I, I don't remember where the question started, but I've just, I've just, I've just been through finding out what a messed up teenager I was. And I think I did share these ideas with some friends, but nobody really wanted to do it with me. So eventually it led nowhere. Did you, were you ever instead it turned into be a band i guess yeah that's what i was going to say this is about the time that you started doing ice age when you when you were doing yeah it. like like right in the early days leading up to were you ever exposed to meaningless crimes when you were young uh the crimes would would only be meaningless because i thought about it as an art thing but i don't think any crime is that meaningless usually when it's committed so I mean, yeah, of course. Um, what about joyriding? You ever been uh, joyriding? Is yeah, I think joyriding. I remember stealing cars with my friends when we were young, and there was nothing. We would just cruise around. It was kind of this meaningless crime. And I often think about like I mean, what what were we getting out of that? Just maybe it was a rite of passage or something, doing something, pretending we're adults, or I don't know. But there was in 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 my youth, I found that there were a lot of meaningless kind of crimes that maybe it's that whole rebel without a cause thing right yeah I, I, ne I never stole any cars myself but i guess you know there was meaningless crime as 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 you know vandalism and, and breaking things and graffiti and shoplifting outside of absolute necessity but then there was also meaningful crimes as you know we we i, I grew up around in the the sort of radical left-wing squad scene at the time where there was a lot of activism going on and a lot of riots to participate in from a very young age and um but but yeah yeah some 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 meaningless vandalism for sure but also a lot of of of, of meaningful uh, stuff that that actually felt like it was you know, fighting the good fight or, or leading towards some sort of purpose. Could you talk a little about um, that? Is it Ung Dong Shouzit? Is that how you say it? The youth center riots? When I was about 12 years old, I started, you know, um, maybe developing from being a, a natural outcast in, you know, the school that you grew up in and the environment that you're, you are around to a conscious outcast. Uh, and that goes hand in hand with, with, with discovering certain kinds of music that, that you take on as an identity rather than just something that's around. And I started getting into punk and stuff. And um, I, I grew up in, in the neighborhood called Nurbo, where all of these things were sort of tied to. And the pillar there of youth culture, alternative youth culture, was this squad called the Youth House. It's been there since the 80s. Uh, which was a, an incredible place, um, like few I ever seen or nowhere I ever seen. That there was, you know, just like a a, a huge squat that 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 had lots of events going on and a, a, a completely alternative life as to what you sort of knew in the early days. You would drink your first beers there, uh, sneaking out of your friends parents window and and sort of go into this uh, neverland of um a place that was safe to be a drunk 12 year old among other youth punks but also dangerous in itself and this was around the same time uh, or years that that the youth house started getting threatened uh because the government wanted 
there was autonomous activists there. They wanted rid of them. So eventually they sold the house to a Christian sect. The build-up to this lasted years, I think, where the inevitable doom of that place was sort of brewing underneath it all, all the while, while the youth was sort of mobilizing and getting ready for this fight. So my neighborhood was filled with activity and meetings you could go to, going in all sorts of strains. I mean, like you could go to workshops of building barricades, Uh, for demos or protection gear for riots, but you could also check the calendar and, and there would be like some nerdy um, political types discussing like the Bolsheviks um, beef with the anarchists in Russia way back then. And you would go there and understand nothing, but it was exciting <laughs> that something so subversive was just happening just underneath the surface of where you grew up. I mean, like around your childhood street, basically. So yeah, It, it would just sort of like be that that place would become the, the backdrop of it. And while the whole youth was like um, enhancing its fr frustration and the whole thing was building up to this in, in inevitable day where the police would finally come in and take this house. Everybody was had a consensus that they shouldn't be able to do that without everyone giving it their all to prevent that. So there was a lot of riots leading up to that. And eventually it happened. They came in one morning and um, took over the place with a helicopter and a crane and went in upstairs. And we were we ran out of school the minute we heard it was happening. And all my friends were stood crying in front of this. And mind you, there had been lots of clashes and protests leading up to this where I had, I had seen my, my friends and my peers getting beaten down in the street and jailed and there was lots of more jailings and beatings to follow. It, it culminated in a week-long sort of my childhood neighborhood novel becoming a war zone with cars on fire and just rioting until, you know, the police finally got the best of it. You know, this was a long aftermath as well but yeah at a very early age i experienced a serious subversive rise from the youth where banks were being smashed and cars were on fire and people didn't really take any shit from this society that that they wanted to muffle anything that stood out and was kind of living quite peacefully but you know as everything is when it's it's on its own it's a bit fucked as as life is But yeah, it, yeah, it, it was something everybody believed in, and it was eventually just crushed. <laughs> mm. And at the youth house, or um, what? What were some of the things that, when you were when you were attending, uh, you guys were protesting against? What were some of the issues and demonstrations? Or well, I mean, a lot of the demonstrations back then was just more mindless frustration against the government and society at large rather than like a singular issue, which is, is, is quite funny because like, you know, nowadays there's been a lot of protests in Copenhagen with the, with the way that people have been, like the, our government has been abominably handling the refugee crisis and mm. how they're subservly, uh, subsequently prisoned and Black Lives Matter has been on the rise here as well, but it's all been peaceful because now people are fighting for very distinct causes And you don't want to damage the case, even though I understand and sympathize with, with other places where things have gotten more violent with these exact matters. That's just ha hasn't really been the case here. While back then, there wasn't really a singular case as much as that it was, yeah, one thing was the, the house, but the house was sort of a symbol of the house getting crushed was a symbol of how everybody was sort of desperate and in disagreement with society, which also was a better vehicle for violent demonstration because you weren't like damaging distinct course like that. So, so a lot of it would be gathered around like people taking new squats or processing against the, the sale of the youth house or general, just kind of like fuck the government sort of things. Uh, I'm sure there were a lot of protests that there were, that had like a specific issue tied to it, but I can't remember. I was 14. <laughs> And how, how did this lead to um, Ice Age? Like, because I remember when speaking to you, there was a pretty direct connection between that happening and you guys um, doing the band. You came out of that kind of scene and that experience. So can you talk about those early kind of conversations with the yeah. others? Well, I, I don't think any conversations really happened. It was kind of 
blindly uh, reacting to things without having a, a, a real idea of what you were trying to do. But I think after the the death of the youth house in when I was 14, that kind of left like a ground zero, a sort of crater in Copenhagen where that, that whole movement sort of like had taken such a punch that it died down for a bit and couldn't just regain the strength of it after having lost that house because it meant so much. And I think there was something in it with me and, and, and the group I was hanging in that had also not been that satisfied with the artistic output of the youth house. So I think, so when I was 16, a couple of years later after that was demolished, I, I started to, I, 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 I had grown dissatisfied because, you know, that it was, it was a very traditional punk environment, but, you know, a lot of hardcore bands, a lot of crusty bands. Artistically, in terms of what I, I was into, it just didn't really stir in anything in me. And, and, and I, I wanted to, I, I, I think I was unknowingly longing for something that was, um, that had an artistic merit to it that didn't, that I didn't really see anything do that could f- fulfill me in, in, in recent years. So when we started, we were just a complete reaction to that in terms of just being fucked and kind of having this sort of like hooligan culture and people around us were graffiti painters and, and were just looking for trouble where the, the, the youth has been, had been very filled with guidelines and a sort of code. I think we were looking to, to do something that was sort of juvenile, delinquent, just antisocial and um, not looking uh, to be anybody's friend, just to be like a fawn in the side of culture. Because on the other hand, you know, Danish indie culture, commercial culture was also filled with like indie bands and really stale, boring stuff that I loathed at the time. I hated all of it. We just saw that there was nothing for us, so fuck everything. We're gonna be a band where you that that is almost like a gang, and concerts are like a secret club where it's not necessarily safe uh, to um, to go to a concert. And I think that was just like a, a sort of a desperate reaction uh, to 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 being so fed up with with the culture around us. And can you talk a little about some of those early shows and those experiences, like how close to your vision of this nihilistic cult did they actually um, come in reality? I mean, on one hand, it was kind of innocent. But yeah, I mean, like the first many gigs was just like um, anybody who was dumb enough to to book us for a show or let us play their, their venue, all of our friends would turn up and they would smash all the furniture send each other to the hospital or something. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, it's not like there was a complete lack of empathy. Like, you know, like, but in terms of reaction, it, it, it was very much like a us versus them sort of mentality for a while until that sort of became, you know, that sort of mentality fortunately should have its uh, lifespan or it gets really pathetic really quick. But for a minute, like it, it was just um, a, a group of friends that made a little club together that, that nobody were really allowed to get into unless they sort of like looked, had that same tinge in the eye of like a twisted look on the world and just about making it anybody who booked us sort of regret it. Can you talk a little about the writing um, of those early lyrics and your kind of being forced into this position to kind of craft your art manifestos into lyrics and the like. How did you approach that when you first started writing? Well, completely without experience. So I guess I was trying to put words on some things that I was feeling and I was trying to establish like a world within the lyrics that is, was like, that was maybe like had ties to this reality we had built for ourselves, but also sort of like building a mythical extraterrestrial world around that and something that was sort of mysterious and uh, hard to penetrate and and drawing on a lot of symbols and and um, sort of magical thinking 
in retrospect but those are, uh, but, but 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 i think that those were also early attempts of like not really knowing how to command language around and and you know they're they're they're, they're very much also works of a 17 year old kid that doesn't really know how to, to use english that well even you know were there any tracks uh in retrospect that you think you you did accomplish that and really pull together a sound and a language or style that you think uh represented where your head was at that time i, I hope that that most of it would sort of express that to some extent but I'm, i've never really been one to look that much backwards hmm. so i haven't i haven't listened to any of the, those records in in many years uh so so i don't have the best uh, analysis of um what it might be dan do you find that as well as a musician you don't go back because i know with with my writing i never go back and and read anything i've published uh um slightly out of fear because i feel like it, it's just terrifying to to look back at where you began but as musicians do you do you find that you once something's published, it's it's no longer yours, so to speak, and it, and you just turn your back on it or something. Yeah, I very rarely listen to any records that I've made um, before. Like, I really avoid listening to anything that I've made until about ten years has passed or so, and then I start really enjoying it. But if it's in the last few years, it's a bit it's a bit raw and it's a bit unsettling. I think it's not something. That I choose to do very often for the same reason as, as you. It feels very strange. Um, so, Ilias, do you do you find I, I, when I think about it, I think it might have something to do with musicians touring. Like your relationship with what you produce is so intense over a, a year or or however many years you continue to tour with with the with the artwork that you've produced, and then you kind of abandon it or or don't want to go near it do you think it's got something to do with performing so intensely uh, as well as producing an artwork well i I think it's 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 kind of uh when you produce an album of record it ends up becoming sort of a amalgamation or a capsule image of everything that led up to it Everything you went through in life, every struggle, every moment, uh, every thing that sort of led you to wanted to commit something, and then you, you in a in a in a burst, try to encapsulate that recording, and once it's encapsulated, you can't change it. It just becomes this sort of like closed off summary, and it, and it can be kind of painful to to look at that and it can be kind of dangerous because you will also start seeing its flaws uh, like, like i remember seeing diaries from from long ago and, and and you cringe at the things that you would mourn about or or the way that you would put things or or this past version of yourself that is perhaps not really there anymore i mean the same person is there, but it's a, it's a window into the past and that, that can just be a hard thing to face. So I tend not to get nostalgic or revisit too much of, of my previous output. But you were mentioning, Daniel, the, the, the 10-year mark, which leads back to me reading through those old diaries or notebooks today. And I, I read some of the writing I did then, and it was fascinating to me because it is past that 10 year mark and there was writings about having like uh walking in the middle of the night at, at quarter to five in the morning having dream visions of controlling the weather and like all these mad uh, feelings or, or, or like a chronicle of uh, that i've been writing um in my mother's house in the middle of the night while the house next door was on fire and firefighters were battling to um, keep the fire from um, from spreading to my building and the other next door buildings, and then describing my absolute um, numbness to the, the whole experience and how I kind of felt a carelessness to the whole event. And I, I, I guess this was being written while you know this is taking place on ground level that firemen were trying to kill this 
fire in my neighbor's building and, and how I had this teenage sort of like just being completely distanced from the whole experience and not necessarily feeling that negative about it. But, or perhaps it was like in, if, if, if I was feeling numb permanently at the time, it sort of became closer to the fire inside or something. I, but, but like this, these like, well, I mean, like I would perhaps like some years ago, like ha- harshly cringe at that, but, but, but I, I literally just read this an hour ago and, and I was like, what a gloriously messed up kid I was. <laughs> yeah. I think the bottom line for me is I'm not, I'm not very sentimental. I don't keep a lot of, mementos and trinkets and souvenirs from my past and particularly I don't revisit a lot of that work because I don't feel any kind of nostalgic longing to be a a child again or even someone in their 20s again or even someone like a few years ago again like I I don't see the work that I've done as um as being something that I want to forget or leave leave behind but I'm more focused in the work that I'm going to be doing next. And yeah, so, I, I, I feel like my whole youth I've been waving a battle against sentimentality and nostalgia. Um, yeah, I'd like, I'd like you to kind of talk a little bit about that because it's one of the things I feel I, I connected with you strongly on and hadn't really heard anyone articulate it as well as you had at the time. I, I think I was just quite naturally disgusted with the idea of, of nostalgia um, and sentimentality because I had this idea that, that there was a necessity to um, move forward and to wallow in recent past sweetness would be digressive in a way. And I don't think that I'm necessarily correct in this way of thinking. And I think that I'm softening up a bit now on, on on this way of thinking on my 28th year but i think it was necessary for me to to progress to just have sort of a very harsh way of um rejecting anything that that would lead me towards being rocked in in the sweet arms of, of the past you know so I, I i don't really know what that says it's just something in my nature that that always rejected that does this resonate with you, Mahmoud, or do you have a box of diaries that you revisit from time to time under your bed? Yeah, I have. Um, I I always took notes, uh, and I always scribbled inside books uh, whenever I had I thoughts and stuff. So, but yeah, I look back on on those texts not very often, only serendipitously, like if I'm moving shelves or cleaning my room or something. But I don't even recognize a lot of the times some of the things written in those books. I, don't, I, I think um, I have quite a dissociative personality, so I, I, do, I tend to distance myself or reinvent myself uh, more often than I probably should. Um, or maybe it's healthy, I don't know. But uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I find it really difficult trying to understand who that person was that wrote those and maybe or filled those notebooks and maybe that uh someone said uh it's it's slightly cringy when they read it and yeah i i kind of get that too it's it's a bit cringy or um just foreign or, or something yeah or strange i don't know i definitely feel this sense that we've matured over the over a time in which um nostalgia was so strongly written into popular culture and the ways that people around me interacted with popular culture was so like nostalgic and even getting into punk and underground culture that kind of uh, longing for the glory days was always something that disgusted me and and made me like cautious about committing too much to that identity or that world it, it was the kind of callous ferocity um, of sentiments like yours Ilias, um that i encountered more on the outskirts of punk and, and interacting more with literature and, and art that I found that that sense of disgust for, for sentimentality and nostalgia. I feel like it's something that is, if anything, becoming more and more prominent in the way that people uh, interact and speak about the past as this kind of 
mythical Aiden in a lot of respects. Yeah, and even if the past is just last summer. But I, I, I did see a change in myself uh, uh, starting writing, writing the poetry because I, I did do these daily spaces for myself to sit and write, not with a song in mind or not merely sort of um, spontaneous notes, but sitting down with a blank sheet of paper and then just waiting to see what would come visit me. And sometimes it would be something that ha happened earlier that day. Sometimes it would be impressions from the previous night. But sometimes there would be none of that. And what came to visit me was memories. And then I would have to sit with that sentimentality of memories long gone and sort of, sort of being stuck all of a sudden in trying to recall them or put or feel them again. And um, it kind of changed my outlook on it a little bit that there's actually value to be found in revisiting things and um, also having lived long enough to have a few things to revisit. There's sense to be made of, of what came before that has now led up to <laughs> whatever that fucking being you are now is. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm less radical on, on that note now, I think. I think this idea of being sentimental is really, really interesting. I think it's in an infinite jest. Uh, David Foster Wallace writes about um, this kind of cynical transcendence of sentiment as being a fear, uh, like this fear of being human or something, being really human, um, because it's so ingrained in our memory. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of something like that? Because uh, it is, I mean, even in art and in literature, it's very hip to be cynical of sentiment. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's easy to uh, reject the idea of a past when you don't have much of a past to take from. But having lived a bit longer, you know, there's um, a mold to, uh, to look at. But I, I, I find it all very fascinating, um, the idea of memory, for sure. Um, and how you revisit it. I, I, I'm going to butcher this quote, but I remember seeing this um, uh, photography book from um, uh, Sally Mann, and it's in, in the first page it had a quote from somebody, I can't recall who is, um, but it roughly is this short quote that talks about that the guy who said this, he, he, he used to think of his childhood as a building, as a house, like his childhood home. Mm. And the memories and the feelings of that, he, he used to feel of those memories as something that he possessed, as like a, a locked thing in his heart that he could revisit and recall upon whenever he decided to. But then at an age, which I imagine being much older than I am now, came to the, to the tragic conclusion that his own memories, that was his possession, was not his memories. They were, they were a digressing thing. And he was re re revisiting memories of him memorizing certain memories and... and um, and, 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 and that the whole thing that he felt was like a golden diamond in himself was actually just like a deteriorating thing. And I just thought that was so sad, but so true. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, especially the way memory kind of plays tricks on us or tries to keep us safe by shape-shifting. I think that's, that's really interesting too, like a memory. Our brain kind of protects us from uh, real memories by by reconfiguring them and, and you know presenting them Definitely. to us as a mirage or something. And, and I think that's also why I was so so rejective of of nostalgia because I remember many years ago reading uh, some sort of study or writing about nostalgia, and it it, it said that the human brain has a way of um, filtering out all the 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 negative sides of of our memories to a degree i mean of course trauma is stuck permanently and can haunt us forever but when i read that 
I, I was filtering through my own memory and I was looking at early teenage summers where I would, where, where summers felt like they were lasting forever and you were stuck to your own little circle of friends and you were just outside most of the time in your little hiding spots and, and, and doing your things. And, and I, 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 I would think back of, of those times as being absolute utopian idol idyllica uh, mm. but 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 um but then when i really thought about it i saw that nostalgia had filtered through filtered out all the pain and all the um, all the ways that i in those times i was fundamentally feeling awful and life was kind of crap so so i i i mainly remembered the icing the beautiful icing of the cake of those years rather than a lot of and, and and they were also that icing it's not that 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 wasn't true but my my through nostalgia i had filtered out like half of it because half of it wasn't that nice to remember and it's interesting that you make music and music is such an anchor for nostalgia and i find it's yeah the most... yeah definitely yeah but 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 also a, a curated anchor hmm well, if anything, I'd say Ice Age are defined by refusing to kind of trigger those nostalgic uh, fantasies in the audience. Like you don't stay still long enough for people to be able to build up that sentimentality about what you're doing because you continually are reinventing your sound and making these kind of movements away from and almost completely rejecting to the point where you play like maybe one song off your first album or something. Is this something that you've talked to the the others about or has this just happened organically? Like, is this an agreement between? I I think we talked about a a bit about it as it sort of happened. We didn't, we never talked about direction or where we wanted to go. That was just an impulse. But we used to have like an almost sort of fetishistic enjoyment in disappointing people. Um, uh, because when when we started getting like international fame and, and an audience which we were also appreciated a lot we could just feel that there was entities uh whether there would be established entities or um fan-like entities trying to sort of pigeonhole us and box us in and we were not ready for that and hopefully we, hopefully we will we will never be ready for that so 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 when we we would release an album by the time that album w- was released we had already started going into the next di- direction we would sort of neglect playing that album altogether and go just with songs that knew but nobody knew and didn't know how to react to and then you know they, they would catch up later as the next record came out but there would be like a period of, of us starting to play those unreleased songs almost exclusively and we would enjoy that people legitimately didn't know what to think or do about it in the moment because in a sense we won then <laughs> you know like like we threw them off like they couldn't they couldn't get us it, 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 especially from the the transition from the more f- frenetic, fast-paced start of the band to where we began taking a more d- dramatic approach to songwriting. That was where, before Plowing Into the Field of Love came out, that we started playing those songs on whole tours in the States. And people were expecting to just have um, a concert where they could just react and, and mush and do whatever was expected from an Ice Age concert and they would expect that chaos but then an, a, a new kind of chaos came out of that because I, 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 I didn't I never wanted to be that, that, that hardcore band men, the mentality where the whole thing is like a, a, a synchronized dance that is to be expected from even before you enter the, the venue so, so naturally like we wanted to do something where it was almost impossible for the audience to 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 get into that uh, because we wanted to maintain ownership of ourselves that we don't come to to you to do whatever dance is sort of felt is required here 
like we want to force you to think about how 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 do I react in the moment to this music, uh, rather than okay one two three one two three four here we go and that led to that sort of almost perverse enjoyment in disappointing those people, but at the same time you would see disappointment disappointment in some people while you would also see interest in others that had a curious mindset you know. How, how conscious are you of your audience when, when you make music? Um, I know as a journalist, I have to be hyper-conscious of the readers uh, whenever I'm writing uh, because you're writing for the public, essentially, um, and you're doing a service. Uh, but what, as a musician, it, that relationship skewed. Um, how conscious are you of the people that listen to your music when you're making it? I, I would say less and less. I think because the the initial burst of us storming into the media and getting hype and all that shit and and being like the quote unquote saviors of punk and all that um which we never had any interest of being that 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 led to like uh yeah yeah like we we were for all we could trying to escape any box they would try and put us in and now I think that we have a quite understanding audience that that it's not a given that you that you should expect a particular thing quite the opposite maybe uh so 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 i i I feel a bit more free to do whatever I want now rather than doing things in direct defiance between um plowing into the field field of love and uh, the record before that you you took a four-year break before releasing beyondless did that gap change a lot for you in, in your process and, and what was the need for that four-year kind of break because you were releasing quite consecutively prior to that right yeah um like after plowing almost immediately after recording every record the the next direction would have suggested itself immediately but after plowing, the songs that we started rehearsing and coming up with ideas would just seem like a continuation of plowing into the field of love. And um, that made us just sort of a bit weary and directionless because we had no interest in doing a sequel to a record we already did. And that led us to just sort of put things on hold because the last thing we would want to do was repeat ourselves. And then I went up and often did a couple of Martian Church records where I sort of, I, I think personally as a songwriter, I, I, I broke a lot of barriers, barriers that, that I needed to break in order to, to figure out what another Ice Hit song could be. But, um, but to me, it's important. I, I'd rather take a, a three-year break um, than just commit something half-hearted that seems um sufficient and how do you how do you know when when a song's working for you like how do you know um well the thing is i feel like you never really do until you're quite far in the process and 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 the way i write songs is something that requires a lot of um of putting the work in and a lot of hours something is consciously sitting down and trying to carve it out and something it's just if you're on a paper writing or just fucking around with a, a piano or guitar just noodling and then you'll have a multitude of ideas they all usually seem equally shit or good in the moment but then personally i i have to sit on ideas for a long time to understand if they're even worthy of pursuing. I will have a lot of ideas going on at the same time, but the, one, the, the, the ideas that won't leave me are the ones that I will bring to the other guys in the band and, and ask for their help in fulfilling that idea. And still then, like sometimes, you know, it, it might go in the garbage bin, but I feel like it, it, it's a lot of time it's the question of, of, of having an idea that simply won't leave you alone. Can you talk about the most recent example of that, just to ground it a little bit, the song that most recently wouldn't leave you alone? Well, I, I, got, I got a bunch of songs right now that, that won't leave me alone. 
and and a lot of them are probably very bad but 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 it's 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 always a whirlwind of fragments of melodies and words flowing around in that space that could become something i have um 30 different songs traveling around my head right now and maybe only a a, a couple of them will become something but um but i i, I feel a the creative space in the back of the brain is sort of like a nebulous void where everything is torn apart and just sort of like in the midst of either disappearing or gluing on to some other idea and creating like a juxtaposition of um, the things. And, and, and I, I don't really know the formula. Um, I just know that sometimes some things stick and sometimes they work and sometimes you want to pursue them and sometimes you actually put them into the world and sometimes people appreciate it sometimes they don't like uh, I'm, I'm just trying to uh keep the mystery and the immediacy of it all and uh hopefully not um become shit <laughs> <laughs> do you do you um you you would have been writing lyrics at the same time as writing poetry so how did they how did you decide what went where because they're like for for all intensive purposes, like you could have put some of your ideas across either. So how did you filter that? Well, I mean, like um, I keep notes steadily, being stationary in the same place or traveling whenever something might hit me. And that sort of gathers up a, a, a load of material. Um, and then when I'm about to, to go into the studio with a record and, or I know that, that it's sort of about to happen, I will usually take out two weeks that I'm saying to myself, okay, I'm writing the lyrics now. And I'll, I'll, I'll do that with the, the base of what I've been gathering up in my notebooks and also just through sitting there, but it would be a fixed period of time. And then they become whatever they become. And, 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 and the poetry I've been writing on has just been, you know, forced sitting there, creating the time on a daily basis without any thought of what it might become. And, and then also uh, I usually keep, keep notes and lyrics in, in, in English. And I wrote the, the poetry in Danish just to separate the words and not allowing them to bleed into each other that way. I got a perfect language uh, barrier there to, to prevent that. Where does your inspiration come from? Are you reading a lot of poets when you're writing poetry or, or are you pretty just free, free flowing with it? With this, I, I, it, it was free-flowing. Um, mm. I, I think I can point to certain writers in earlier years that definitely were the ones that introduced me to kinds of language and kinds of worldviews and kinds of um, ways of taking in the world and beauty and everything that, in it, that the world entails. Um, that opened my 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 view to how you could use and utilize language in ways that 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 made a blew up a age bomb into my own writing for sure. Uh, but now I feel uh, with what I read, I, I'm not necessarily so conscious anymore as to which thing that I read does what to my writing. It just all sort of like flows in there, and I don't really know which things. Mm influenced what and so on who were those early writers writers that i know that you guys uh have, have been infatuated with as well you know people like shanshanay and and mishima and henry miller and atai um those were definitely like a a, a four-leaf clover of people that where I, I had as a teenager read like you know the beatniks and that kind of thing mm. um but opened my my eyes to how and and abstract um, way of, of finding beauty in like 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 uh, severe almost um, fetishistic beauty in in things that could be described as less attractive. Yeah, there's definitely an echo of that uh, in your early manifesto. Um, Janae's quote, crime is beauty, you know, is isolating, isolating meaningless crimes and making them appear beautiful. 
Yeah. Have you listened to anything recently just before you said um, you become infatuated with words or, or melodies and things that keep haunting you or following you? Is that, is that, does that happen when you read other works or, or listen to other people's music? Um, I find I, I, I'm constantly caught up in these loops of, you know, either a paragraph I read or, uh, you know, a drill song I listen to. Does that, does that happen to you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, I, I think, I think that that some of the um, reconsolidation I found with literature in the first place is that it, and and the same thing goes with music when you hear the Stooges or whatever for the first time. It, it is that there's you, you you've been going around with this unexplainable feeling that you can't put sound or words to, but you've been feeling it your whole life and suddenly you you stumble upon this piece of literature or m- music or whatever it is that will echo those will e- echo that feeling but it's been like this blurry nonsensical thing to you and suddenly it is tangible there put into like something that describes it exactly what you felt but much more concrete that you could ever think about yourself and 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 you still stumble upon those epiphanies in in culture that 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 will lead you to have that thing of like okay somebody somebody lived through whatever this thing i'm feeling is and they actually they actually made it something tangible that you could take hold of and that's a massive amount of um of feeling understood within that, but also leading you to understand yourself better. I don't, I don't know if I can point to anything directly right now. I feel like also this year, having been writing that book, I have read less than I have in, um, in a decade or something, uh, because a lot of my reading time have gone to my writing or editing time. So like last year, like I, I was missing, mostly provoked by The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison and uh, The Master and um, Margarita uh, by Michel Bulgakov, I think he's called. Uh, but, but those are not really s- stories that I felt I could Im- Im- imply into my own sense of creativity, but more so being just great literature going through the the notebook today i I read a quote by um, notorious big saying uh why should i have uh, any reason to fear any human that draws in that draws in the same air as myself which in hindsight is is a very flawed quote (laughs) you should definitely fear people that draws in the same air as you as you so yeah, uh, that that definitely didn't still ring true with me. Um, <laughs> yeah, that that book I was talking about is called "On the Line: Notes from a Factory" by Joseph Pontus. Uh, but what was that? The guy who was who was uh, plagued by uh, insomnia? No, that was actually uh, Emil Joran. Um, DX uh, lent me a book of his maxims. Um, just earlier, we were speaking about how Ilias is suffering from insomnia and uh and uh i was i recommended that book because um Duran writes really harrowingly about insomnia and how he made it work for him yeah when i was experiencing insomnia on on the level of it being like quite dangerous for my mental health i found a lot of comfort in the insights of Duran. there's one thing that he says which really just got me started thinking about it that the inability to sleep is something that's uniquely like human. I feel like um, insomnia and the inability to sleep was one of the earliest provocations of a creative drive in me. Um, does that resonate at all with you, Ilias? Or does it kill your creative drive? Um, I've been dealing with insomnia in periods through my whole life. And there's, I feel like there's that two kinds of insomnia. That there's the one where where you're sort of ready to sleep, 
but then your 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 mind will twist and churn um because it's trying to form ideas and it it's it has something that it it wants to get rid of and those kind of nights of staying up all night i i've I've found massive benefit to and then there's the other kind where you can't utilize your awake brain to anything you're just in like a state of mild torture um trying to yearning for that that peace uh, and and that, that final release of 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 sleep but you can't get to it so so you just endlessly sort of like stuck with your awake brain but it doesn't really want to go anywhere in particular and um so yeah i i found that insomnia can be quite a lovely thing and it can be uh, a bit of a hellscape are you sleeping yeah that definitely resonates are you sleeping throughout the day then and uh and really being up in in night yeah i've i've taken the 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 odd uh, grandpa nap here and there those have been quite good <laughs> I've I've been through this shit before. Like um, like I I feel like whatever my brain needs to go through usually is if if it's a bad period usually it 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 makes sense in regard of where it leads to next. Um, it's just a question of how long, and I and I think that goes with the artistic process as well. Like um. Like it's it it's all not always a dance on roses. You 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 have to, having gone through the the circles of of what you need to go through to to get wherever you're getting. Like nothing is permanent. Everything is just a a temporary state. And, and the next state that you head into will be informed by the previous one. So uh, usually nothing is so bad that it's not good for something. Elias, have you accepted the state of worldwide pestilence and plague as being a new normal and something that is going to really affect your, like your, you, you've toured consistently your entire life since you started playing music, I mean, and now that's looking like a quite a difficult thing. How, how have you adjusted to this reality? Like, is this something that you've, <laughs> you're ready to talk about? Yeah, I mean, um, I go back and forth, you know. Um, I, I find peace in looking at history, as I think many do, that the new normal, despite being unprecedented, is also the old normal. I mean, um, I'd never given the Spanish flu any second thought. I knew that something it was something that happened, but I, I, I found, found reconciliation in knowing that that happened roughly a hundred years ago, and I, I was looking at pictures of of um, people around 1918 dressed in long coats and hats and whatever people were looking at like back then, being being adorned with with masks that looks roughly exactly the same as the one that I go around seeing in the cityscape now, um, and that created like a, a nice comforting parallel that. Even though that I I have been living in a in a sort of um, heyday of of uh, nothing like this happened, it, it's nothing exactly new. And then you teeter around on the brinks of hope that we can return to to a, a bearable or, or or sense of normalcy again. And I still have that. I, I think so. You know. Um, but I also think that. In a, on a on a broader scale, as a society, as a civilization, this whole thing has uh, made us question the normalcy which we want to return to, because turns out, um, no surprise, the world's been pretty fucked all along, and um, it's actually created like uh, a space for people to to take a, a perhaps bird's eye view of the fuckness of, of, of how we live. And, and I feel like for the first time ever, like I think like in those early years, I, I was disillusionized with 
society uh, because it seemed like society's walls were so high and so thick that they were sort of unbreakable. But for the first time in my lifespan, I feel like we experience the transparency of um, of how we're governed, of how we kept, and that it's a slightly more fragile than we thought all along. And I don't know where this is going to lead, but it's definitely very interesting. I think that's a really good place to finish this conversation, actually. Um, I just wanted to ask about um, the knives in your merch shop. <laughs> and how, oh, yeah, how that, yeah, that, why, why, you, why you thought to have knives and where I can, where I can get one. I mean, those, those are long gone. I, I didn't have <laughs> had them myself. And they were never in any online merch shop. It, I mean, like I, I've had a... a you know, this was in the early days as well, and uh, you know, I, I had had a a thing for weaponry, and I had a thing for danger, and um, without thinking too much of repercussions or anything at all, I just think it would be a killer thing to have knives with our logo on it. So we got it made, and we were selling them through a, a U.S. tour with like a little like. I, I think our tour manager uh, was responsible enough to like make like a no stabbing, don't, no, you can't see them, like take them out when you get home, sort of like sign on the merch table. And fortunately, there were no stabbings. And I, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I don't know who owned those things now, but yeah, to me, it just seemed like a cool thing to do at the time. Uh, in hindsight, wildly irresponsible, <laughs> but you know. Uh, <laughs> Such is life. Litmus Media.